But anyway, we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapters 12 to 19, obviously not all of it, but that's the kind of big block of teaching that we're looking at um, this evening. Uh, do any of you ever watch MasterChef? Yeah. Do you know the, the catchphrase at the beginning of MasterChef? Cooking doesn't get any tougher than this. <laughs> well, Bible teaching doesn't get any tougher than this, I can tell you. <laughs> this is where I have to earn my money here this evening with this, uh, this section of Revelation. Just to fill you in very quickly on, on the background, um, we're looking at this book, this last book of the Bible, uh, which is very complex in many ways, and yet underneath it, when you can dig away at it, it's actually a very simple message. The complexities are mainly caused by people who want to see in Revelation only future events that need to be specifically individually fulfilled. I'm not taking that approach with Revelation. I'm taking the approach that it was written at the end of the first century at a time when the church was being persecuted. As a result of that persecution, John, one of the followers of Jesus, was in exile. And from exile, he wrote this book to encourage the Christians in the region of Asia who were suffering persecution under the reign of the emperor Domitian. Many of them were losing their lives. Many of them were being hurt. Many of them were tempted to turn back from the faith. This book is written to encourage them how to live in the midst of persecution. There is a future dimension to it, and we'll think about that in the next two weeks. But it's mainly about, it gives you an overview of the world of world history and how patterns of behavior are created and recur throughout human history. He chooses to write in a particular form. It's called apocalyptic, which is like a storytelling, which involves creatures and miracles and dramatic events that that shape and affect creation. But those are meant to be taken symbolically. And when we just try and unpack some of those things in consistency with the rest of Scripture, we just start to understand what this book is all about. Last time we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the way they affect the church, that they come as a sign of the guaranteed authenticity of the church, but also as a warning uh, to the world. This section is entitled The Battle for the World. Just to encourage you, next week we'll look at the future stuff, which is far more exciting and far more hope-filled, but you just need to hang in for this week, and uh, I can assure you it's, it's pretty exciting stuff although not always easy to grapple with. But I'll make it as simple as I can as we think about these very complex chapters in Revelation. Honestly, this is as tough as it gets as far as the Bible uh, is concerned. Now, I want to read uh, a few sections to you just to give you a flavor for that. Um, And I'm going to start with Revelation chapter 12. And I'll read a section from that and just a section from chapter 13 uh, as well. So uh, Revelation chapter 12, um, beginning at the first verse. Okay, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. 
And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then we jump down to chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who, will make, who can make war against the beast? And then we'll just jump down to the, the next beast, uh, chapter uh, 13 and verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight... Let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Okay. (laughs) Let's get into this then. Um, I was a teenager during the 1970s, and uh, that was when I I became a, a Christian. And actually, the 1970s was the kind of high point of the the more uh, fanciful interpretations of the book of Revelation. A number of factors involved in that. It was at the time when communism was kind of at its height. The Soviet Union was still a, a feared superpower. Uh, China was still, you know, as it, more or less as it is today. And many people saw in these, uh, in these states images of what it's talking about here in the book of Revelation. On top of that, you had things like the oil crisis. Everyone remembers that back in the 70s, 1973, 1975. You had Watergate, which kind of shook the United States in 1974. You had the Middle East conflict going on at its height. And all of these things kind of came to, seemed to be coming together. And many people were predicting that this was the end of the world. It was about to happen. And as I mentioned in my first uh, talk, it was against this background that Hal Lindsey's books, Late Great Planet Earth, uh, and that kind of thing became very popular and sold millions and millions of, of copies. Those of you who were into uh, heavy metal at that time, I'd even remember Iron Maiden. Who remembers Iron Maiden? <laughs> yeah. Who went to Iron Maiden's concerts? <laughs> they, <whoa. laughs> He's marked. <laughs> Iron Maiden, of course, one of their albums was called 
the number of the beast. That's right, the number of the beast. I was looking at their, their discography, actually, in research, purely in research, I assure you, and I noticed that one of their, that one of their uh, albums was also called The Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. I'd never heard of that one. Uh, and I'm sure that um, that also, also has overtones of revelation. But it just kind of added to the mix of what was going on in that era and to the drama of the book of uh, Revelation. Don't tell me you've got Iron Maiden on there now, have you, Tim? <laughs> but anyway, many people were seeing what they believed was revelation being worked out in front of our eyes and at the end was very near. And the Christian community kind of tapped into that with films like Thief in the Night and Larry Norman's famous song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, which terrified everybody who listened to it uh, in my youth group uh, at that time. But the... Uh, were they, yeah, later 70s, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Could well have been, yeah, yeah. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, but as I say, it just gave a background to some of the, the more fanciful interpretations of uh, Revelation. But what I see in these chapters is not so much the, the need to look for specific fulfillments of these mythical kind of characters who are, uh, who are ex- identified here um, in the book, but rather to see behind these vivid symbols patterns of history being worked out at all times. When John wrote these words, we have to keep reminding ourselves of this, the people who read them would have understood them. They would have understood them. They weren't a mystery to these people who wrote them. Why write a book that's going to confuse people when you're trying to encourage them? They would have understood them. And likewise, as we look back now over history, I think anyone who has a bit of wisdom can start to see how some of these things are always working themselves out, not necessarily in specific events, but in patterns of behavior in the way it works out in the world. And so that's the approach that I'm going to take to these chapters. Can I just say that the background, I think, to these chapters is this, that the Christian life has always been seen as a battle. These chapters are all about battles, the battle between good and evil, the battle between light and darkness, the battle between Christ and Antichrist. Again, I don't believe in a literal antichrist figure but i do believe in an antichrist movement that is always going on throughout history and that's a very biblical picture that the christian life is a battle now it's not one that we're very happy with and it's not one that we you know we're very comfortable with but nevertheless when you read scripture that's the emphasis and i've given some examples there in the handout um the way that the nation of israel had to fight to get into the promised land particularly Joshua, um, where the, the, the uh, project to get into the promised land very much involved battles. So, for example, in Joshua chapter 5, you have these verses. Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So it's very much pictured as, as a battle. And the imagery of the Old Testament, the the transition into the promised land, is not from uh, a life of difficulty to a life of comfort. It's actually from a life of living outside of God, a dependence on God, to a life of living independence upon God. 
So the Old Testament has these very physical battles which make very uncomfortable reading, but they're always used as a picture of what life is like for someone who believes in God and who wants to live for God. We might think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but Jesus said some very tough things about the way that it would be for those people who followed him. Matthew chapter 10 is a fascinating chapter. Did you, you notice what he says there in chapter 10, 34, 36? He says, um, do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus envisages there that being a follower of him calls us to engage in battle, in a fight. And in his, one of his most enigmatic statements later on in that chapter, he talks about the kingdom of God, and he says um, the kingdom of God, um, where is it now? Uh, 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 12, the It says, until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Very enigmatic statement, that. But it's clear that he envisaged life in his kingdom being a battle, not an easy ride. When you come to Paul's letters, you might be aware of Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about us putting on the whole armor of God. The image is that as a Christian, we are soldiers who are called to fight the good fight. Now, for most of history, we've been, we've been comfortable with those kind of images. Salvation Army kind of, kind of took those up and, of course, still does to this day, that we're called to be soldiers for Jesus. We wear a uniform that symbolizes our commitment to Jesus, and we engage in spiritual battle. We're probably not so happy with that in our world today. And then finally, theologically, there's Jesus' triumph over the devil on the cross. This is an astonishing verse in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and verse uh, 15. Just read that very quickly uh, to you. It says this, talking about Jesus' death on the cross, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's an amazing idea there that on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. Now, the question that people ask me is, well, if that's the case, why do we live in a world where so many things still seem to go wrong? Well, it's like the case where the war is won, but there are still battles to be fought. As long as we remain under the shadow of the cross, under the lordship of Christ, we will be triumphant. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean comfortable, but we will be triumphant. When we do not live under the shadow of the cross and under the lordship of Christ then we expose ourselves to the devil's influence. And that's the, these are the ideas that lie behind Revelation, that we're in a spiritual battle. And John takes this apocalyptic form of writing, and he provides us with a series of visions which use graphic images to portray that idea that as followers of Christ, we are called to engage in a battle that has an application in all areas of human life. The term Antichrist doesn't actually occur in Revelation, but it does occur in one of other John's other writings, 1 John 2, verse 18, where he talks about the battle between Christ and Antichrist. That is, light and darkness, truth and error, Christ, Antichrist. And these images, these symbols in Revelation that we're going to look at are the kind of a physical way of representing this battle against evil that is always going on amongst God's people uh, in the world. So let me just try and very quickly unpack the the key characters 
in this section of Revelation. The first is the dragon. That's chapter 12, verse 1, uh, to 13, verse 1. It talks there about an enormous red dragon. Now, can I just say, I have a problem with this. You see, for me, (laughs) for me, the red dragon creates deep emotion within me. The red dragon is a sign of my heritage, of my roots, of my belonging, of who I am. The red dragon stirs my passion, my excitement, and sometimes my despair. I have red dragons all over my house. I used to have a red dragon on my car. I've got a red dragon t-shirt that I wore yesterday, and I was going to wear today, but it was so smelly that I thought I'd better not. Because, of course, for me, the red dragon is a symbol of the home of my birth and the, home, the place that I'm very attached to, Wales. Now, does this say that the Welsh are the representation of the beast? <laughs> well, some might say, I won't let you answer that question. <laughs> some might say, oh, absolutely, yeah. But just, just a serious point here. I get very hot under the collar about this. But when words and symbols must always be interpreted in context, we all get irritated with political correctness, don't we? And one of the reasons we get irritate, I get irritated with political correctness is that it takes words and it rips them out of context and just gives them one blanket definition. and says, if you use this word in any context whatsoever, it is wrong. That isn't the way language works. And this is a good example. If the red dragon is always a beastly symbol that represents Satan and the devil, then pity help us Welsh people. Fortunately, it isn't that way. Oh, in this context, in the scriptural context, the red dragon is used as a symbol of evil, but only in this context. It makes it quite clear that that is the interpretation. This is not a fanciful uh, interpretation. It makes it quite clear in verse 9 that the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So he interprets interprets it for us. You don't have to guess or work it out. It actually says it there in verse 7 and 9. So this image of the dragon represents Satan, the devil. And uh, in this very confusing section here in chapter 12, It pictures his battle on earth against God. Don't be too het up with the mixed metaphors. For example, in verse 6, he talks about the woman fleeing into the desert. That's an Old Testament picture. The woman represents Israel and the time that she spent in the desert. Talks about this woman giving birth to a child, a male child who will rule all the nations. That has to be Jesus. But it's a bit of a mixture, isn't it? One minute he's in the Old Testament, the next minute he's in the New Testament and Jesus Don't worry too much about the mixing of metaphors. The message is there is always an evil influence in this world. There always has been, there always will be, until God decisively intervenes again at the end. But the message is, for now, God's people are called to engage in the spiritual battle that lies behind events and people that fight against God in the world. How do we do that? How do we engage in this battle against evil? Well, we are called to engage in it. And this is an amazing verse, chapter 12 and verse 11. Um, This is a a navigator's memory verse. Those of you who ever did the navigator's uh, topical memory system, I remember memorizing this verse when I was a, a teenager. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. 
And that ties in with one of the messages that keeps recurring through Revelation. Do you remember I pointed out in chapter uh, 1 and verse 9 how John said that the reason why he was there, the reason why he'd been persecuted was, chapter 1, verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's saying the reason I'm in exile, the reason I'm being persecuted is my commitment to the word of God and my commitment to keep on testifying about Jesus. Remember in chapter 6 and verse 9, when he opened the, seventh, the, the, sorry, the fifth seal, I saw the altar of the, under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So the saints, he says, the faithful in Christ, are characterized by, again, their commitment to the word of God and testifying about Jesus. Here we have it again, chapter 12 and verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What that's saying to us is, The way that we engage in the spiritual battle, the way that we engage in the battle against Satan remains the same. We build our lives on Jesus and his salvation. That's how we engage in our spiritual battle. You know, I was thinking about this today. Our purpose statement is knowing him, making him known. That's what it says here. Knowing him, how do we know him? We know him through the blood of the Lamb, through our coming into a relationship with Jesus as a result of what he did on the cross. How do we make him known? By the word of our testimony. By our testimony of what Jesus has done for us. So there you are. Purpose statement for uh, for St. John's is here in Revelation. The blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. That is always the way that God's people will engage in the spiritual battle by trusting for their salvation in the blood of the Lamb, and by making that known through our lives, through our testimony. So when we think of the dragon who represents evil, how do we engage with him? We overcome him, it says John, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, by knowing Christ and making him known. Well, then we have the second uh, image of evil in these chapters, and that's a beast. The beast that comes out of the sea. There are two beasts in this section. One comes from the earth and the other, well, the other comes out of the sea. Now, this too tells us something important. It says, the beast I saw, well, it talks about this real mixture of metaphors again, being like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. But it says then, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. So this beast gets power from the dragon, from Satan. Now, most people believe that this beast represents society or the state. The horns are symbols of power. The throne is a symbol of authority. So the beast from the sea seems to me to represent states, societies, which are opposed to God. Now, that presents us with a problem, because on the one hand, we understand from Scripture that governments are ordained by God, and we're called to pray for governments. Here, the state, society, is seen as opposed to God and his people. How do we resolve those apparently contradictory ideas? Well, I think the way we resolve it is found in that understanding that it's the dragon who gives the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. What that's saying is, I think, anyway, let me put it this way. The devil is not creative. He never comes up with anything original. 
Rather, he always takes something good and perverts it. That's the representation of evil in scripture. Evil is never original. It always takes something good and perverts it. That was very real for these people. They were facing a state, that is the Roman Empire, that was destroying or trying to destroy the church. Christians were being murdered for their faith. They were, the state was misusing its power and its authority. Why? Because of the evil influence behind it that had perverted this state and made it into something evil. And that's seen many times throughout history. We see it in totalitarian states, in dictatorships, in evil governments. We wouldn't look at Zimbabwe and necessarily immediately think that, you know, a couple of years ago at least, that that was a state ordained by God. We wouldn't look at the Soviet Union back when it was um, a communist state and necessarily think that that was a, a state ordained by God. These things, they're always perversions of good. So the question is, how does God call his people to respond to state societies that are representative of the evil influence behind them? Do we ignore them? Do we just write it off and say, well, every state's ordained by God, so therefore we can't do anything about it? Well, the Bible calls us to pray, yes, and that's very important. But I think it also calls us to work, for us to work together to redeem our society, whatever that is. The call at the end of this section is chapter 13, verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That's our, the, the, the response God calls for through John. Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And that reminds us that whatever society we live in, whatever government we live under, God calls us to be an, in, an influence for good, to work hard, endurance and faithfulness, to build relationships, to seek strategic relationships, to work in partnerships, to set up projects, to pray, to work with the gospel. You know, I think this is something where we're beginning to learn here at St. John's, that if we engage with our society, then we can be people who have a good influence in it, that we can start to push back the tide of evil that we may well see around us and start to have an influence for good. So that's the representation of the beast of the sea, is a state or a society that is opposed to God. What does it call us to do? It calls us to work patiently with endurance and faithfulness in the midst of that, that we might work to redeem our society. That's something we need to do in our society It's something we pray for others who live in much more complex and difficult societies than us as they seek to live under the lordship of Christ in those situations. So that's the beast from the sea. Third representation is the beast from the earth. And there are some overlaps here and yet some differences as well. And I've put there it represents church or religion. That's a very, very broad phrase deliberately. Um, It's a very difficult idea, this beast out of the earth. It's similar to the first beast, but also seems to have some religious overtones. So, for example, in verse 11, he's described as being like a lamb and yet like a dragon. Difficult, isn't it? Because the lamb is clearly a symbol of, of, of sacrifice within religion, but the dragon is this beastly figure, this figure of evil. 
Um, This beast calls people to worship. Verse 12, he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Again, this would have been very meaningful to the people who this was written to. The Roman Empire, had as it, its emperors were expected to be worshipped. So there was a religious overtone to their empire at this time. Um, he performs signs and miracles, verse 13 tells us. Uh, verse 16 says he demands personal allegiance. So this is something more than just an evil state, an evil society. There is some religious overtones going on here, and the Roman Empire would have been seen in that way. It was a totalitarian state, but it was also had these religious overtones where the emperor was a god and people had to worship the god or else they were persecuted. And again, when you think about it, you see this working out throughout history. I mean, even the Nazi government tried to put their their beliefs in a religious context. It's interesting that the most totalitarian state in the world today, North Korea, what do they like to call their their president? Our beloved leader. Kind of religious overtones in a state that has supposedly stamped out religion. So it's very complex. Sometimes it's very blatant, the kind of error that calls people to worship it. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's like a lamb and you have to work out what is actually going on here. Other times it's like a dragon. It's very in your face. So the response from the church is to call for discernment and wisdom in the way we go about our work. Let me just pick up on this 666 thing and try and uh, explain that uh, to you. Verse 18, the number of the beast, 666. Remember at the beginning I told you that seven in Jewish numerology is a symbol of God at work. That's why there are so many sevens in Revelation. It's a symbol every time of God is at work. Well, if seven's a symbol of God at work, six is the symbol of man at work. Six. Why is it repeated three times? Well, in those days, if you wanted to emphasize something, you did it by repetition. Today, we might put it in bold type and underline it. Well, they obviously couldn't do that in those days. And so what they did was they repeated it. So if six was a symbol of man, 666 was saying man, man, man. It was an emphasis. If seven's a symbol, therefore, of God at work in power, six is a symbol of God at work in, uh, sorry, of man at work in his power. Now, we don't want to get too head up about 666. It's just a way, it's just a number to symbolize Something. You know, some people think, oh, if they lived at house number 666, that their house would in some way be a house of evil. Or if you had 666 on your registration plate on the car, that somehow that car would be a, you know, a place of evil. Um, that isn't the way it works. There's no superstition around this. There's no evil power behind the numbers in themselves. It's just a symbol of man at work. And what it's saying is that these movements characterized by the beast from the earth, the characteristic of them is that they will be all about man. They will be all about humanity. Six is lower than seven. That is, man always falls short of God. So we're, we're called here to discern the sixes from the sevens, right? We're called to discern the works of man from the works of God. 
And you see, I think this is quite relevant actually to today. So much of what passes for religion today is very self-centered. I am the center of the universe. It's all about me. And actually, this can infect the church sometimes as well. I worry sometimes about some of the things that, that we see. Even within the church, we have to be careful. The danger of the it's all about me culture in our songs, in our worship style, in our Bible reading, in our listening. We just have to be aware of that. And so what this is, is it's a call to discern what's going on in the church. And I use church in a very broad term. This calls for wisdom, says John. God's people need to be people of wisdom who can discern man's work from God's work and who can work with God rather than work with man, who can advance God's kingdom in this world rather than promote man's kingdom in this world. It's a call to discern with God's wisdom. And then just finally, the final representation of evil in this chapter, uh, these chapters is, is Babylon. Babylon. And uh, that's chapter 17. Now, Babylon kind of represents everything that draws people away from God. Now, let me just put that in context again. Babylon was one of Israel's most ancient enemies. Babylon was one of the, uh, the nations that conquered Israel in the Old Testament and took her off into captivity. And ever since that time, Babylon became the arch enemy of Israel, the most vivid you know, symbol of opposition to God's people. Babylon was always used uh, in that way. And this gets a lot of uh, ex- people excited because, of course, ancient Babylon is now geographically where modern-day Iraq is. And so you know, some people would see Iraq, therefore, in this kind of way. But it's actually a symbol of an ancient enemy, the one who keeps coming back again and again. I could say England, Germany here. <laughs> but, but it is, isn't it? Germany's always seen as the enemy, you know? Every time there's a football match, what happens? You know, it's like Basil Fawlty, isn't it? Don't mention the war. <laughs> Don't. I saw that some of the, you know, just before the match, they were going back through history, and there was this picture of, remember, Stuart, uh, Stuart Pearce wearing the, a Second World War soldier's Helmet shouting Achtung, which was the headline from the sun during Italian 90. And there's always this idea, isn't it, that you know, we have certain, there are certain countries that we just are always enemies, always enemies. There we go. There we are. England, Germany's in Revelation as well. But all it's saying, to be serious, and not be flippant, um, all it's saying is that this nation represents everything that draws people away from faithfulness to God. Really interesting, the twist that John puts on this in Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 6, it says of Babylon, (laughs) this title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. John uses the image there of prostitution. And he sets that against the image of the church as the bride. Because in chapter 19, um, which the passage that Tim read at the beginning, uh, describes the church as the bride, the bride who has made herself ready for the wedding of the Lamb. So again, it's the Christ-Antichrist contradiction here. Christ 
is represented by the church. Antichrist is represented by Babylon. Christ is represented by the bride. Antichrist is represented by the prostitute, the harlot. And actually, I, I, and I just want to finish with this. There's a, a temptation to see the biggest danger to the church is apostasy. That is wrong belief. But what this tells us is that one of the biggest dangers to the church is not apostasy, but allure, A-double-L-U-R-E. That is, not wrong belief so much as wrong relationships. Babylon is described as alluring people away from the bride of Christ, from faithfulness to unfaithfulness. Now, this is not just about sexual sin. It is about that, but it's something about something much broader. This strikes at the very heart of our relationship to God. I think Paul spoke last week about our first love, about the danger of losing our first love. Well, that fits in with this imagery here. This image is a call to faithfulness by God's people. And that faithfulness will be seen in our worship. Verse 9 to 10 that Tim read at the beginning, it's actually a very complex two verses there. The angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now notice what happens. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. The temptation was to worship the angel. But what does the angel say? The angel says, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You see, even there, there's a subtle um, attempt to allure the people of God away, to worship the angel rather than to worship God. So this image of Babylon is a call to worship, to faithfulness in worship. To worship anything other than God is to be unfaithful. So we are called to worship him. What are the things that draw us away from God? Well, they're different for all of us. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's things. Sometimes it's religion. Sometimes it's habits. Sometimes it's lifestyle. The message of these chapters of Revelation is we're in a battle that touches every part of our lives. And that challenge is seen in many ways. The victory that is ours is not seen in technique, not even in belief, but in relationship. A relationship with God bought by the blood of Jesus that draws us close to him. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we've become entangled in the me-centered activities of the world. We become overwhelmed by the society in which we live, and then we're easily allured away from God. But God is always faithful to us. And the final call of these chapters is to stay faithful to God in his word, in prayer, in testimony, and in worship. And when we commit to those kind of things out of our love for God, then God will enable us to be faithful to him and to be victorious in this battle that we're involved in in the world. Well... There's so much more we could say, but I hope that gives you just a quick overview of those chapters. It's like living in the in-between, you know? But next week, we move to the end. We move to the final end of all things. We look forward. We're looking in the present in these things. Next week, we'll move to the end. We'll explore um, chapter 20 and think about how the end will happen. And then in the final week, we'll think beyond the end to eternity 
And I'm really looking forward to that, exploring the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation talks about and what that will mean uh, for us. But for now, let's pray together, shall we?